Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, September 7th, 2020. I hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend. Labor Day, that's a big one for obstetricians. In today's podcast, cerclage at your cervix. Andre Rebarber and I discuss the topic of cervical cerclage. This is a surgical procedure that is done in certain pregnant women to sew the cervix closed in the hopes of preventing pregnancy loss or preterm birth. It's a fascinating topic as it's been around for over 50 years, yet we're still trying to figure out exactly who needs it and how to do it. Andre is truly a world expert in this topic, and I'm really happy to have him as my guest today. Also, please be sure to wish Andre a very happy birthday on Wednesday. On Thursday, Dr. Sherry Gelber joins me to talk about another fascinating topic in pregnancy, preeclampsia. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple. I would really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Andre, welcome back to Helpful Woman. So glad you're here. Happy to be here. So today we're going to be talking about cerclage, which I know is a topic that is near and dear to your heart, right? I'm at your cervix. At your cervix. That's uh, that's the rhubarber line. So this is a topic that you know we could spend weeks talking about it. There's different angles to take. Certainly, we spend a lot of time talking, you know, with the residents and other doctors about more of like the medical aspect of it. But just to take a step back for our, our listeners, what exactly is a cerclage? So a cerclage is really an operation to support and maintain the pregnancy by putting a, a suture around the cervix, which is the lower part of the uterus. That's the part that's generally visible in the vagina. Right. So essentially, it's the idea that there's the pregnancy above it and the cervix, which is the bottom. I sometimes tell people it's like the knot of a balloon or it's just sort of like the very bottom. And the thought is that this is a procedure where we can sew it closed to keep a pregnancy in. And that's sort of what it is. And these have been done since probably routinely to some degree since about the 1950s, Yep, I would say, plus minus. Yeah. Shirodkar came with sort of the first one, though there are other techniques prior to that, but right. this is the one that sort of remained with us. Basically, that technique was developed, which is a little different than it is today in uh, that they didn't use suture and they used connective tissue from the patient themselves and to tie it to reinforce the cervix. But then sutures started to be used. And there's actually different types of sutures, but the name itself, Sharadkar and McDonald, imply a certain type of dissection or surgery that gets done in, in order to support and sustain or close the cervix, as right, we say. Right. And Sharadkar and McDonald were doctors. So it was Correct. named after the people. Right. It's been around since the, you know, the fifties and at least in mainstream obstetrics, I would say. But the interesting thing is there's so much controversy about this procedure, about whether to do it at all or in whom or how to do it, when to do it why to do it. And there's there's so much disagreement about that. Why is that? Why is it such a controversial topic if it's been around for so long? You know, we have a, a surgery, but we're still trying to figure out the diagnosis. And there's actually the, the tradition was that you once you had a cervically incompetent cervix, then you always had a cervically incompetent cervix. And you know, there's a lot of data now that suggests that that's not the case, that the cervix seems to be weak in some pregnancies and may give way, and in others it doesn't. The problem also is, is it innately a cervical problem, or are there other causes for why a pregnancy was lost that may mimic the appearance of a weak cervix? There are certain traditional clear reasons. For example, in the era when women were getting a medicine called DES for the prevention of miscarriages back in the 60s or so, then what they found is that if you had offspring that were female that were exposed to that during critical periods of embryonic development, they had abnormal cervical development. Actually, the collagen to smooth muscle ratio was different in the cervix itself. And so because of that, the strength of the cervix was affected. So that was a teratogen. It was a drug that was given to women to prevent miscarriages. Ironically, it led to their offspring females having more miscarriages because they had a weak cervix. But those women aren't really around anymore much in reproducing because that they got rid of that medicine once they figured out that it caused these problems in the early 70s. 
And so that is very clear cause for, per se. Or if somebody had a cervical tear, a laceration for some odd reason, surgery to the cervix where the cervix was operated on and a major tear occurred, those are the ones that are very clear that there's actually a structural problem. But when there isn't that history, when it's not so clear, and when you have just a woman's history of a miscarriage in a mid-trimester, it gets very hard because there's really no diagnostic tool that we have in the non-pregnant state to predict which cervix will be competent or be incompetent once a pregnancy goes in. And so you sort of are left once the pregnancy is there in a reaction to what is happening biologically by monitoring the cervix with ultrasound and then determining if it's getting shorter. The shorter it gets, the earlier it gets, with fewer or absent contractions, the more likely you have this diagnosis of cervical insufficiency. The later it gets shorter, the more contractions somebody has. And if it's very mild, it often doesn't mean cervical incompetence. Right. So it's really that kind of thing that you have to weigh the evidence together plus the patient history in that pregnancy to make a right. decision. Right. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because you know, you're going over it and it's it's complicated and there's a, a couple reasons. One is that, like you said, we don't really understand or we haven't defined a diagnosis, right? So conceptually, the, the reason the procedure exists is there's a thought that there are some women whose cervix just is weak. It doesn't work. It doesn't do the job. There's something wrong with it, so to speak. And so it's not going to be able to be strong enough to hold in a pregnancy on its own. And people who have this condition are going to lose pregnancies, either not typically early miscarriages, first trimester, more like second trimester as the baby is getting bigger, or maybe early third trimester. So either they lose the pregnancies or very early uh, preterm pre births. Right. And so the thought is, okay, if someone has this problem, the solution is there's no like medicine you could take to strengthen your cervix theoretically. So you sew it closed, hold it closed. It's going to hold everything in. Okay. So the conceptually works, but we don't really know who has that problem. Because like you said, there's no test I can do. I can't do an MRI or an X-ray or a biopsy or a blood test or some, or an ultrasound and say, oh, you have this problem with your cervix. You know, in other parts of the body, we can do that. We could tell someone if their heart is weak or if, you know, their muscles are weak or this, but you can't do it with the cervix. So we don't know. And the second problem is the procedure was used before we knew it worked. So meaning there wasn't a time where we said, okay, we may have this problem. Let's do a really good clinical study where we give half the women this procedure and the other half we don't and let's see who does better and that really wasn't done a lot in the 50s and 60s that type of research wasn't you know routine whereas it is or not routine but it wasn't done and now it's it's more common and it's considered the gold standard so we had a lot of women who got this and had good outcomes and was it because they got this or was it going to happen instead and so we've been trying to catch up ever since and since we can't tell who has quote unquote, the problem with their cervix, we have to sort of piece together a lot of different clues. So a woman's history, if someone has multiple losses in the second trimester, it's more suggestive of a cervical problem. It's not definitive, but it's more suggestive. Or like you said, if the cervix is getting very short or dilated very early in pregnancy, it's more suggestive. But the problem is, again, and this is something that you know we learn is if a woman's going to miscarry for any reason, the cervix is going to have to open. So even if it's due to inflammation in the uterus, so there's nothing wrong with her cervix, but it's going to cause the cervix to open. So it becomes very difficult. And what happens is a lot of people get different opinions. You know, you go to four different doctors and one will say, you absolutely need a cerclage. One will say, you absolutely don't need a cerclage. And then two in the middle say, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Well, there's some doctors that will give you this two different opinions and it's the same doctor. So yeah. you never know, depending <laughs> on the time of day and where they are. But what was... what? All of this, the cervical incompetence saga, when I, when I was at the beginning of training as a resident in the early 90s, most of the data that was out there was from the 70s and 80s, was, was fewer trials and mostly what we call retrospective. So people just kind of went back in charts. They used the patient's history as sort of an example. So you took patients who might have had a miscarriage or a very early preterm birth. The doctor put in a stitch and lo and behold, the pregnancy went to full term, so therefore it, it worked. That was sort of the evidence, right? And that's kind of what we had. And then we had by the mid-90s, people started to look at what critically we were doing as doctors, particularly in obstetrics, 
there was a lot of uh, controversy on management of preterm birth and whether you use certain medicines to stop preterm birth with home monitors or medicines called tocolytics that unfortunately didn't show that they worked. And so they sort of was this nihilistic approach, like we really don't know what we're doing. We don't understand preterm birth. We don't understand cervical incompetence. There's, you know, these are not disease states themselves. They're actually syndromes that actually have many different pathways that lead to this final event. And so we don't know what we're treating. And these medicines didn't seem to work so well in some cases. And sometimes anecdotally, they worked okay, but we couldn't figure out who were the best candidates. And there's by the late 90s or so, early 2000s, there was sort of this push to sort of say cerclages don't work. There's actually no proof that cerclages work. We shouldn't put them in at all. And so there was still doctors are left from that training period believing, no, we're overdoing it because it was overdone. People had losses. Intuitively, it seemed like a good idea. Let's just close the door, bolt it shut. Nothing comes out. If you certainly had a bad history and a doctor offered you that, people felt like that sounds like a good idea. And then you had other doctors who felt it's surgery, there are complications from this stuff. We're not going to do it. And she hasn't proven that she has a problem. And we don't even know what we're treating. So we're not going to do anything. Even in the face of pretty overwhelming clinical evidence in the sense of that index pregnancy. So for example, that you're seeing the cervix get shorter or potentially even dilate. And they said, well, too late, nothing works. Right. That's that. And so you had this these two camps that exist where they would be more aggressive and put it in just in case it made the doctors feel better, the patients feel better, we'll do something, we're doing something different. And then the other camp of people who felt like nothing worked, you haven't proven it, so don't even bother putting it in. And sort of, I think over the last 20 years, there's been a lot more clarity, at least from what we call prospective randomized trials, which is what you were saying, that there's certain groups of people that we feel may have from a risk benefit ratio, the risk of surgery, the risk of some complications from this procedure, you balance that versus the benefit to say, yes, the majority of people will actually benefit from from this and the risks are few. And so it's worthwhile to do in certain circumstances. And there are certain criteria that the American College of OBGYN, as well as some of the other groups have actually, Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, have tried to put out and give guidelines to physicians. And But again, their guidelines based on an understanding from these trials, but some patients don't fit into the trials and right. don't fit into the inclusion criteria. You don't know exactly. And so you really still have to make sense of it on an individual case basis. And I think twins always has been a challenge because there's so few trials. Still, most of the data on twins is retrospective and not prospective in nature. Depends on where you trained, who trained you, right. uh, and I think your impulse to do surgery or not as right. a fix um, right. to a very complex biologic problem. Right. It's almost like you know, you're know you describing a pendulum. Like in the past, it was swung all the way in one direction where all the doctors like, for sure, do it, and they were probably doing too many. And then it swung in the other direction, and right. then people were like, don't do it at all, and then we're probably doing too few. And obviously, with most of these things, the answer is somewhere in the middle. There's more precision, but it's hard. It's hard to know exactly who was the right candidate. So we have fortunately had more studies on this and more research. And we are, I do think, having a better sense of who is a good candidate for this. Uh, and it's a conversation with every patient, you know, who's who we're thinking about this. So we'll tell them, here's the reasons I think it's a good idea. Here are the risks. And we, we go over it. But I think conceptually, we have a, a more precise way of thinking about it. And one of the things that was helpful is in terms of describing cerclage and articles about it and research about it, it was determined, and I think for the better, that we really need to divide them into why they're being done. So there's really sort of, you know, three different camps uh, of people who may get a cerclage. One is what we call a history-indicated cerclage. And a history-indicated cerclage is basically one where the cerclage is being placed only because of their past pregnancy history, meaning their prior pregnancies are so suggestive that there's a problem with the cervix that we decide you need a cerclage like right away. By right away, it's not the second someone gets pregnant. It's after sort of we're sure pregnancy is going to miscarry, about 12, Usually 13, 14 weeks. Right. After yeah. the first trimester, but, because most miscarriages right. are going to be then. Right. But it's it's a decision that's made before anything happens in this pregnancy, meaning it's from her past. And that could be because of either we know she has a torn cervix, what we call laceration. It could be because of prior pregnancies, you know, that she either miscarried or had early preterm births and it was suggested with the cervix or she had cerclages before and it seemed to work, you know, things like that. That's history. And that has its own set of, you know, data and inclusion and whatnot. Then the second reason is what we call ultrasound indicated, which is the cerclages being placed because in this pregnancy, 
on ultrasound, the cervix looks short. And there's, you know, people who have that incidentally, people have it with symptoms, people have it with history. So it gets subdivided, but that's sort of the reason it's being placed. And the ultrasound indicated one of the, it's kind of a happy middle ground. Yeah. That's helped us to avoid a lot of history indicated cerclages with the advent of transvaginal ultrasound and monitoring. Because they used to be, as I sort of alluded to earlier, once incompetent, always incompetent. And that was sort of the adage. So if you had this clinical history that suggested a pregnancy loss in the mid-trimester between 16 and 24 weeks, that those patients, yes, absolutely, they would benefit from a history-indicated cerclage because we really didn't have a way to assess what was happening. The cervix, even in cervical incompetence, seems to be a slow process of shortening and then dilation. And the dilation part, the part that we can see as obstetricians on the outside of the cervix, is a very late finding. But it does seem to shorten as a, from inside out and dilate from inside out. And ultrasound gives us that window to be able to look through and see that it's actually the process is beginning up at the top of the cervix and it's shortening before it's open all the way to the bottom, essentially to the outside world. What's neat about the ultrasound indicated cerclage in patients with these funny stories or unclear stories of why they had a loss and so on, is that you can actually avoid a lot of cerclages right. by monitoring them. And so, in fact, this multiple studies show that if you monitor these pregnancies that had a possible loss in that period of time, the reality is that only about 30, 40% of the time do you actually need to put in a cerclage. And by doing an ultrasound indicated cerclage, that means waiting till it's proven that you seem to have this problem by ultrasound versus just by history alone, when you combine history plus the ultrasound findings, you actually are more likely to get it right and avoid unnecessary surgery right. um, in those patients. And there's no difference in outcome and right. by either putting it in at 12 to 14 weeks versus uh, waiting till doing it as its cervix is getting shorter. So as long as the outside of the cervix was still closed. Right. And so that is very clear. There are multiple studies to show that. So you don't lose too much by waiting. And in fact, you can gain by avoiding a stitch right and so and i think that anytime you, you can avoid surgery and pregnancy it's a good idea and having a stitch in place itself can provide a certain level of discomfort irregular staining or spotting but also there's an association itself with having a cerclage in place whether it's because of the problem why they needed it or because of the stitch that people break their water a little earlier and might go into preterm labor a little right. earlier so it's not a complete cure there are women even with a stitch still have a higher incidence of preterm birth than those that don't have don't ever require anything, but it seems to prolong gestation and improve outcome in those patients that truly need it. Right. I think that what you're saying is really important because we see a lot of women who's who come to us because their last pregnancy was complicated. And it's not always clear from the story or from the medical records or from whatever you know results we have from pathology results, lab tests, this or that why she lost the pregnancy, right? We know she lost the pregnancy, like we know what happened, we don't know why. And so in those situations, we say, listen, it, it may have been a problem with your cervix, in which case a cerclage is going to be helpful, but it may not have been a problem with your cervix, in which case a cerclage is A, not going to be helpful, and B, like you said, potentially harmful. It's not considered a harmful procedure, but there's, you know, there's risk, you're doing something. And so one of the options is to just place the cerclage, that history indicated cerclage, or the other option is to monitor frequently. And like you said, about 50, 60% of the time when you monitor, the cervix never gets short. And you realize there's not a problem with her cervix, everything is fine. And so you had a bunch of, you know, visits and ultrasounds, but you avoided a procedure. And you also know for even future pregnancies moving forward that my cervix works, so to speak. And then if you happen to be in the 30, 40% of people who it does get short later, you know, in the second trimester, and you had that history before, everyone's much more confident that the cerclage is the right thing to do for this person. And that's really helpful because it's, it's, it, essentially you can not do six out of 10 cerclages and be confident that the four out of 10 you're putting in are the right ones. But uh, the irony of all of this for, for my perspective is that we still don't know what we're treating per se. Right. And, you know, I've, I've always been humbled by even just last month or so had a patient that delivered, but six months ago, she came to us for a possible history indicated cerclage. Her story was that she had an ultrasound indicated cerclage. Really, it was more the exam indicated cerclage. So in the last pregnancy, she came for a routine anatomy scan. This was her first pregnancy. We routinely look at the cervix 
at all of our anatomy scans at 20 weeks to make sure that it has a preventative strategy for preterm birth. And she presented without any symptoms, dilated, two to three centimeters, no history of cervical surgery, no history of anything else. So we took her emergently to the operating room and put an, an emergency cerclage in, and that's the exam indicator. Right, that's the third type. The third type when you're dilated, um, and that is wrought with more complications. And now she came back. This is her second pregnancy. Right, she did well in that, that pregnancy. Did well, went to full term, actually, um, and that was very happy. Um, and then she asked, do I need a cerclage? And I said, well, we don't really know. Let's monitor you. And she went all the way through, and her cervical length was normal, and no stitch in this next pregnancy all the way to and delivered full term again. Right. And so when you think even what you have it, that seems like a pretty obvious case of clearly she was dilated. We don't know what we had. It may be unique to that individual hormonal environment, that milieu, that pregnancy itself, but it may not occur again. And it's always humbling that something so classic may not be classic. Now, right. there's little downside on, with a with history and it's indicated cerclage in the sense of surgical complications are less than 1%. But if you don't need surgery, then who wants to have it? Because it right. also requires anesthesia and there are complications later on. So ultimately, I just tell you that vignette, one, to get into exam indicated cerclage, right. but also to say that even in those cases, when you've had that classic story, it may not happen yeah. again. And, and, and it's that, amazing. Yeah. Or you see someone where, you know, the first pregnancy is like that. The second pregnancy, the cervix does get short and she gets a cerclage again. And then the third pregnancy, the cervix doesn't get short. Right. And nothing, it's just, it's, it is remarkable. So when we talk about the three sort of reasons for cerclage and we call them types of cerclage, it's the same operation. It's the same procedure, just right. history indicated in, implies the reason it's being placed was the history. Ultrasound indicated is the reason it's being placed is ultrasound findings. And the third exam indicated is the reason it's being placed is the cervix. You can actually see it being opened with your eyes or you can feel it on an exam, but it's it's not an ultrasound thing. It's, it's you can see it. Those are the three kinds. And within each subgroup, there are criteria for who is and is and is and is not a good candidate. And there's data and research. And so, for example, like a short cervix on ultrasound, we're very confident if that woman, her last pregnancy ended early, that the cerclage is going to be helpful. But if this is her first pregnancy and we see the cervix is short on ultrasound, we're not as confident that a cerclage will work because there's a lot of reasons a cervix can be short. And so that itself, there's so much controversy about this. And Right. A short yeah. cervix does not yeah. indicate that you need a cerclage. Right. And also, you know, what's interesting is it's country dependent. So for example, in the United States, we do not put cerclages in, in general after 24 weeks for the majority of centers throughout the country. But if you go to Europe, they'll go up to 26, some up to 28 weeks where they'll put right. cerclages in for a dilated cervix or a short cervix. And really what you're trying to identify and why we are so concerned is after 24 weeks that the majority of this is not a weak cervix. It's a short cervix or a dilated cervix because somebody's actually in labor. And you really don't want to put a cervix, a cerclage in and somebody who's in labor because the cerclage only holds the cervix. But if the uterus on top is contracting, it'll rip through the cervix and right. cause more damage. So you're trying to identify the cases that truly are isolated to just a weakness in the cervix and not where somebody has the uterus is activated, they're contracting, and therefore they're in labor or going to go into labor shortly, where the stitch can actually do more harm than good. So the gestational age in general matters how short in the sense of when the cervix got short under 24 weeks and the earlier it is and the shorter it gets earlier the more likely it's a weak cervix. The later it is, let's say a, a cervix that's at 23 weeks short, and that's not so short, maybe a 2.3, which is about, you know, 2.5 is generally what we co communally use as a, what defines a short cervix, though some people will use two as a cutoff, so not so bad. Most of the time, those generally don't necessarily reflect that a good idea to put a stitch in unless there's something in their history. So in general, short cervix alone is not enough an indication unless there's very short and early for us to really consider this being a treatment. Right. I think that, you know, sort of the, the takeaway message from all of this is that, you know, the cerclage is there and it is a procedure that's going to help some women. It's not going to help other women and it could harm a certain group of women potentially. And it takes a lot of thought to figure out who exactly is likely to be in each group. And I think that you know, for doctors, we have to have a lot of humility and not dogma about this. And we have to take the research that's available, but more importantly, take the specifics 
of this woman in this pregnancy at this point in time. There's so much that goes into that decision that is nuanced that can't be neatly wrapped into one study because they're all different. What's her age? What's her history? What's the cervix look like? What does it feel like? What else is going on in the pregnancy? What symptoms does she have? You know, it, there's so many things that go into that. And it really is a conversation. And we frequently, you know, we'll talk to women and tell them we're not really sure we can be more aggressive and place it, or we could be less aggressive and wait a few days or wait a week and check again. There's a lot of options. And I think that, you know, for someone who's not sure, am I someone who needs a cerclage? Am I not? And if your doctor seems to be very thoughtful about it and he or she's talking to you about sort of what is the reasoning behind this and why and this, it seems that they're probably having a better thought process than someone who says, absolutely yes, absolutely no. And, you know, you know, we don't, they don't discuss it, they don't talk about it. That just seems to be a bad way to approach this. Uh, and so I think that's important. You could always get second opinions, although unfortunately, sometimes these things are pretty emergent uh, situations and not right. not, I mean, not available for second opinions. But I think that we always try to, you know, even in our own group, we talk amongst ourselves and discuss these cases. Is it a good candidate? Is she not a good candidate? Yeah, we, I mean, it's, you know, and we it's, let it's, democracy yeah. rule, but sometimes <laughs> we override democracy yeah. depending on yeah. you know, the patient's experience and what their desires yeah. are and the, and the physician yeah. who counseled them. But also, I think that one of the hardest parts uh, to interpret the literature is when you're taking a surgical procedure. This is not sort of like a pill that you can establish compliance with or a certain intervention where somebody does something and then you monitor what they did. A surgery has a lot, and particularly this type of surgery, I've always found it, it could be quite challenging some of these cases. And there's a certain level of experience and that's required for these things to be placed. Not so much the history indicated, but when you get into exam indicated or very yeah, uh, technique, technique matters te with this technique, surgical experience, skill sets. And then if you do these, look at these studies, they really don't address a lot of times who put the cerclage in, what the skill sets of the people placing them in, assuming all physicians have equal skill sets, which is sort of like saying everybody can throw a fastball, just like <laughs> Mariano Rivera used to do. Right. I don't know if that that's the case. I mean, not, not everybody can throw a 95 mile per hour fastball. So there's definitely variation on technique and variation on skill set, particularly for the more complex surgeries. Or if somebody had surgery to their cervix, something called the leap procedure, where they cut a portion of the cervix off. I mean, and, and you really don't have much cervix to work with that skill set to require it. We had that case. Do you remember? Yeah, I, the, me I remember me and you, it was it exactly was, one year ago. Right. From oh, yeah. recording. It was actually exactly one year ago. Oh, that was funny. Yeah. We had a, a woman who, who everyone, she had a, a, a difficult history. She had a short cervix and her doctor actually, I think correctly said, you need a cerclage based on what they found, but they took her to the operating room and they literally could not do the procedure because her cervix was so short surgically it was flush up against the vaginal wall. So they couldn't identify it to do it. And they said, sorry. And they, you know, stopped the operation, sent her home. And, you know, it wasn't an emergent situation, but she, she came to us and we said, yeah, I think you need the procedure. And, you know, Andre and I, we went, I remember it was on a Sunday, we were in the operating room right. and it took, you know, it was very two difficult. Of us, to, yeah, actually, two of us, you know, to, minutes, yeah, to place it. And it was very difficult to do. And you can see why someone would say well, it doesn't work. And she had fortunately she had a very good outcome and everything went well. But she I remember did have a preterm birth. So it's right. not a cure. Right. And that was a very bad case because yeah. she almost she had whoever operated on her earlier. They took off all of the cervix that was in the vagina. essentially. Right. So all you had was above the apex of the vagina. So at that point, she only had about a one and a half centimeter cervix left. And so we have to create a new cervix. And that lends itself to the next sort of type of cerclage, because most of have been discussing is vaginal approach cerclages. Right. But certain cases, like in that case, she was advised, try again in another pregnancy, but get an abdominal cerclage, right. which is a te technique where you go from above and whatever the cervix is left above the, so you're operating, opening up the abdomen and then t putting a stitch around the top of the cervix that way versus vaginally, you can get that way. But that technique requires a lot of skill set to get from point A to point B vaginally versus just going abdominally to point that right. point. And right. I think that um, in her case, that's the advice she got, which is it's not doable vaginally. It, we were able to accomplish that in the pregnancy itself. And then she ended up delivering at 33 weeks, if I remember correctly. But she had a healthy baby and that was fine. 
but she's still at risk because even with a stitch in that case, when you don't have a functional cervix, because it isn't just a structure, it's a functional organ, even with a stitch, it's humbling that you still can deliver preterm. And then does that, do you call that a win or do you call that a loss based on the trials, right? right? She has a healthy baby. The baby stayed in the neonatal intensive care unit for about three, four weeks or so, but completely fine. No long-term complications as far as we can tell at this point and so on. But at the end of the day, it still was a preterm birth. It wasn't a miscarriage. She has a live birth. It probably would have ended up a miscarriage if we hadn't right. done it because she was only 16 weeks at that right. point. But was that a win? I don't know. That's, right. It depends how you look at it. The decision to place a cerclage is complex. The procedure itself can be. There are different ways to do it. And in terms of how to break that down, most cerclages are placed vaginally. And so in the operating room, there's no incision into the belly. Everything is done like, you know, a woman's, you know, she, she gets anesthesia, usually like a spinal or epidural. She doesn't have to be asleep for the procedure. And her legs are up like she's getting a pap smear. And we put in a speculum, same thing, she's getting a pap smear. And then we see the cervix in the vagina. And we operate on it there. That's how almost all of them are done. We'll talk about the different ways. The abdominal approach is much different because there you're trying to reach the portion of the cervix that you can't see from below, right? The cervix basically traverses you know, a certain wall and above it, you're in the belly and below it, you're in the vagina. And so in order to get that above portion, you have to do a much bigger operation. We've done a few of those, but most people don't need them. Fortunately, right. that's an unusual case. Right. She and, would be one of them potentially in a future pregnancy, and, but, but also, that's unusual. And, I mean, that depends on your confidence level and surgically doing yeah. this. And a McDonald is a stitch that is really put into only in the visible outer portion of the right. cervix. The Sharadkar technique dissects upward to try to get closer to that place that an abdominal cerclage gets to. So you get a little more length in your cervix structurally afterwards. But the advantage of the McDonald's and the Sharadkar is that they can be removed at the end of pregnancy right. and people can deliver vaginally. Right. Whereas an abdominal cerclage 100% commits all women permanently forever right. to require abdominal sur uh, the, for delivery, which is C-section. And additionally, it makes, if God forbid they have miscarriages or terminations, it does make them more challenging and risky because the stitch is always there. Right, it's permanent. Permanent around the cervix. So it can't dilate properly and it can't miscarry. Right. Um, and it can cause a lot of pain. So an abdominal permanent suture like that does have some long-term consequences for women of childbearing, particularly if they're young. And that carries its own other complications, yeah. having doing C-sections. Right. So the Sharadkar and McDonald are generally preferred because you are allowing women at 37 weeks, we take it out. Actually, Nady wrote this paper to look at what happens, how long do they take to deliver? And interesting right. enough, even once the stitch is out, it takes another 11 days before yeah. they go into labor on their own with no right. stitch on average only yeah it was only about 10 percent will go into labor the same day when right. you take it out it's you know in terms of the mcdonald and the shiraka so those are the two sort of surgical ways to do the cerclage you know basically a mcdonald's like a purse string and you can google pictures of this you know and there are pretty good images online of what a mcdonald's cerclage looks like and Sharadkar, we have your you doctor drum. Yeah, yeah, and we you know like yeah. with Sharadkar, we make an incision on the top and the bottom sort of sort of like to push up some of the what we call the mucosa to the thought is that we can get higher up on the cervix doing a Sharadkar. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is you sort of see where you're putting your needle more precisely, that it's not gonna possibly go through the cervix into the canal, like where the membranes might be. We usually do Sharadkar. I shouldn't say usually, almost always do Sharadkar. Uh, in other practices, they do only McDonald's. It isn't known which is better. There are some studies that suggest there's no difference. Uh, there's other studies. We published one of them that suggests the Sharadkar is better. It's very hard to know these things because the, there's not a big trial one versus the other because also you need it to be the same surgeon, right? One surgeon would have to do half of his or her cases one way and half of his or her cases another way. And that that's really not as feasible. And so we don't know for sure which is better, but different people have different approaches to that. And then in terms of just so patients understand, like let's say someone is going to have a cerclage. What, what is the process? Like, what does that mean for her in terms of like preoperatively? What do we recommend or how does it, what happens to her sort of from start to finish just so she understands the experience of it? 
Well, we never know too much because we have Linda on our team. Basically, <laughs> well, so that's our the coordinator. Yeah, yeah. And, somehow uh, magically she gets magically, booked in a slot and should, we show up. But should, Linda should do a whole podcast too. With yeah, because she she'd be excellent. <laughs> and and, and neg- the negotiations with hospitals over right. scheduling is right. its own science. But oh, in terms of like you know preoperatively, is that much? You know, no. I think you really want to go over why you're doing, why you're recommending what you're recommending. What are some of the downsides to this? So. The downsides of a cerclage, you can, though less than 1% will miscarry when you're dealing with history indicated or ultrasound indicated. However, if you're doing exam indicated where the cervix is dilated, failure rates have been reported as high as 50% once the sac is coming out of the the cervix. That's a higher risk situation. It's a much higher risk for pre-op. So those are the counseling that you want to do. And additionally, the antibiotics you might be giving in the pre-op phase when somebody's already dilated, maybe some medicines to relax the uterus, something called indocin some people have used. So there are some things you do more and in the exam indicated, and you really want to make sure that there's no infection already present uh, before you attempt that more aggressively, maybe put some monitor on for contractions if they're over 20, 22 weeks to make sure that no one is actually in labor and you're actually mistakenly calling it cervical incompetence when somebody's actually in preterm labor. And it's kind of a spectrum that of all these things. I mean, the cervix may get short and dilate, then an infection can get in and that leads to preterm labor. And so it's not, we don't want to be rigorous about these things because one can lead to the other syndrome. But I think the question is when we're in the phase of this process is somebody because you don't want to be putting sur- do surgery on, on, on them if there already is evidence of infection by blood test, by fever, by abdominal palpation. For a while, people were doing amniocentesis before every one of these exam-indicated cerclages as a pre-op evaluation. So they would do a stick a needle into the amniotic sac and check for bacteria and infection. But unfortunately, the, the problem with that is it's not really as diagnostic as we'd like it to be. And so there's false positives and false negatives with testing. And so Ramstein. And, and it's another down. invasive and procedure. And it's another invasive procedure that may actually cause a miscarriage right. itself before you even get a chance to save the pregnancy. So unfortunately, the, the data is still out on that. And so it really depends on the circumstance whether somebody would attempt to do that. We have done it in select cases. It also can be therapeutic where you actually drain the sac and drain the fluid out. And that magically recedes the membranes and makes the surgery easier. Right. So, for, so we have done it as not only diagnostic, but therapeutic in the pre-op period for an exam right. indicated cerclage. But outside of those kind of things that are unique, and again, you do need to have a conversation with your doctor, there's not much pre-op. Right. Go get, meet with anesthesiologists, get anesthesia, which is very important if you're going to do this procedure. And then from then on, basically go for the surgery. Usually document that there's a heartbeat before we start and afterwards, so with an ultrasound at the bedside, and then we do the surgery. Yeah, and the, the surgery itself is pretty straightforward. I mean, like I said, people don't need to prepare much. We just, they, they don't eat the day of, typically, but that's more of an anesthesia thing. It's not really a big issue on our end. And most women who have a cerclage can have it done with what's called regional anesthesia, like an epidural or spinal, like they would have for labor. Right. You don't rarely yeah. So they're, so they're, so they're, so they're, they're, you know, they're awake during the procedure start to finish. When we start, it could be 15 minutes. It could be 30 minutes. It could be 40 minutes, but it's, it's in that it's range. It's, yeah. It's usually half hour or less. And the nice thing is for most people, when they're done, the cervix itself does not have pain fibers. So it's not painful to have an incision or a stitch on your cervix like it would be if someone did it on your finger. So it's not something that people usually require a lot of pain. Sometimes there's some cramping or pressure or discomfort, some back pain, just, you know, a little yeah, this people and that. to feel some pulling. Yeah, but, but nothing, in the, in the nothing crazy. Period, there is crampiness. Yeah. And so, because anytime you do anything. Right. To and that's more contractions. Correct. The uterus. That's, that's the uterus. And you've induced contractions by a reflex that by touching yeah. the cervix or moving or manipulating the cervix that causes uterine cramps that can last a good 24 to 72 hours after the surgery. So we usually give Motrin-like medicines, Indocin, something called NSAIDs for pain relief afterwards, more so than actually, because we're not stopping preterm labor with them, but just for pain relief and decreasing inflammation. Most of the patients are outpatient. The only patients that we keep after these surgeries, if the surgery is successful, is the exam indicated. We usually like to observe them because they're so high risk that infection would set in and so on. So we may keep them overnight just to make sure everything's right. fine. 
um, and then they end up going home. But most of the other patients just go home the day of the surgery, and then follow-up is usually about a week or so, a week or two later, as far as uh, those things. And the monitoring is for bleeding, infection signs, and gush of fluid ruptured membranes right. are the main prescriptions we tell people to watch out right. for. And there's a small percent, a very small percentage of people whose water is going to break either during or within a few days right. after the procedure. Fortunately, that's rare. That would be a bad complication. Most people have a little bit of bleeding or spotting for a few days afterwards, but there is a small percentage of women who will come back uh, in about a week or two with heavier bleeding. And that's usually pretty frightening, but it's not bleeding from the pregnancy. It's usually bleeding from like one of the scabs falling off on one of the incisions. And so it is something that's correctable and tends not to cause a problem like losing the pregnancy, but it can be a pretty stressful event. So I always warn people about that. You know, the instructions we give afterwards, people usually go back to mostly daily living and routine. It depends on the circumstances. We usually tell them not to have sex, not to have intercourse afterwards with the cerclage in place, but that's more so because it can displace the suture and cause bleeding. It's not so much that they're going to you know, go into labor because of it. And then that's always yeah. been, I mean, that yeah, was it's tradition, we don't know if that's right or tradition not. <laughs> more than anything else. It's where you train. There are doctors who allow yeah. it. There are doctors who don't. We still, you know, we still not sure what to do with that. And it is one of those restrictions that has been passed down because you do have a foreign body there and uh, potentially risk for infection. And the knot is pretty thick in the suture that we use. So that can cause some uh, abrasion on the cervix and cause bleeding. So we've generally restricted intercourse, but we don't restrict activity. Yeah. And that I think we've not put patients on bed rest or any of that. No. And there's little data to support that. And in fact, bed rest can be dangerous. It can increase the risk for leg clots in pregnancy. So there's, and there's little data to support that putting somebody on bed rest because they've had a stitch in place is going to actually prolong gestation or improve outcome. So, and generally we follow them up at two week intervals just to make sure right. that everything's going well. And they're still at risk for preterm birth, even with the stitch in place. People are aware of that. We do ultrasounds typically. And there are people who also believe that if you do place this or clause, you should never look with ultrasound again because quote unquote, it doesn't matter. And you know, there's definitely controversy about that. We've always found it to be useful. We found a handful of cases where we can see by ultrasound, if you do good imaging and 3D viewing, and you can re sort of constitute the image of how's the cerclage around the cervix, we found that in a certain percent, the cerclage moves. And then after like two, four weeks, it's actually no longer around the cervix end anymore. And we've revised some of them. We've taken people back to the operating room. Again, that's the exception. Most people, it doesn't move uh, but if you didn't look, you wouldn't know that. And so right. we we do look. We found it valuable in our own practice, but not everyone does that uh, universally. Yeah, the suture revision is a very controversial topic. But interestingly enough, there's only scattered papers out there, mostly small case series because it's so rare. The people do report somewhere between 3 to 13% suture migration or movement across gestation. But if your suture is dislodged or it was tied loosely for some odd reason or something like that, and you can identify that, I think that's where you get into these scenarios where some of these studies showed that cerclages don't work. Because again, it depends how they placed it, who they who placed right. it, and so on. And so revising the cerclage, we've really done it only a handful of yeah. times in our, in our experience. And we don't tend to do that just because the cervix is getting short. But actually, the cervix has to be dilated for us to really feel like we're going to go in and repair that situation. And if it's failing and we go in and repair it, that seemed to work quite well. Yeah. And um, and so I, I think it's something that we reserve in our rear armamentarium, but one of the reasons we like to follow it. And the patients like to see the cervical length being reassuring and normal. Yeah. And they see that the stitch is in place because they know that it can be dislodged. They know it can move. They know that there's some studies that are associating with the shorter the cervix got, even with the stitch in place, it can be predictive. Right. And then we also add another test called the fetal fibronectin right. test. And we've written about that years ago, where a fetal fibronectin has actually been associated, which is a sort of a chemical, like the glue between the fetal maternal surface. And since these pregnancies, even with the stitch in place, are at higher risk for preterm birth, you, and you don't always know when they're going to labor and if they break their water, you want to identify the patients that are at highest risk. And we've had patients where we use the fetal fibronectin as a gauge to define that, monitor them more closely and maybe prepare for the preterm birth, give steroids that help the lungs mature and make sure that the patient should be transferred to a tertiary care facility where they're 
premature baby might be better cared for and then better outcomes. So right. there's a lot of reasons why you might want to still predict in that setting who would be the best person that is going to go the farthest or go on to deliver early and that might need more intervention. Right. I found the most satisfying thing about falling afterwards is, like you said, you know, someone had a cerclage placed and not so much for the history indicated, but the people who had either a dilated cervix or a very short cervix. And, you know, they're looking at the pictures with us. We show them like this is what it looks like. And then they have this terrible fear that they're going to lose the pregnancy. We do this operation, which also is very scary. And then two weeks later, they come back and you show them the picture of the cervix now and they see it looks like normal. It's closed. They see the stitch where it is. It just relieves so much of the anxiety that was there doesn't believe all of it because they're still at risk, but it's just, and it's so nice. It's you could see with your own eyes, like the ultrasound pictures are clear as day what we're looking at. And, and there's I, something yeah. to be said for that because there's actually data to suggest maternal anxiety, chronic yeah. maternal stress and anxiety throughout pregnancy is independently associated with preterm birth and yeah. preterm delivery. And if there are ways we can provide reassurance to patients that things are going well and things are better and so on and alleviate anxiety and they go about their normal lives because they'll feel pulling, they'll feel tugging, they'll feel pressure. But those symptoms are because the stitches, they're holding everything. So this, the picture is worth a thousand words, as I always sort of say, that that way you don't just say, oh, everything's okay, but you can show them, look, right. there it is. It's Before all after, after. Yeah. everything looks perfect. You're doing great. It hasn't changed in two weeks, even though you might be feeling more pressure because the baby's growing and so on. And I think people just feel so much better um, yeah. and they're reassured. And we do that all the time. Like if, if let's say, you know, Andre put in a cerclage and I'm the one doing our ultrasound afterwards, I will frequently cut and paste a copy of the before and after and email it to him say, look, like this is what it looks like now. Because, you know, we do the operation and they go home and we're not always the one who scans them afterwards. And it's, it also sort of reinforces what we did surgically. And if there were some nuances to the procedure, it's feedback for the doctors too. And then after that happens, generally, you know, if nothing happens with preterm labor, uh, typically remove the cerclage around 36, 37, 37, 38 weeks, somewhere in that range. The thing is, you don't want to take it out too early such that they might go into labor within a week or two, but you don't want to wait too long because you don't want them to go into labor with the cerclage in place. Uh, usually it's okay if that happens and we'll just take it out at that time. But sometimes if someone goes into very active labor, it's harder to take out the stitch. Maybe the cervix will tear during that time. So usually the sweet spot's around 37-ish weeks, 37, 38, somewhere, you know, in that range. Yeah, some doctors never take it out. Yeah, and just wait, wait till, till they go into labor. To labor yeah. And some doctors don't. And I think it's one of those funny things where this is one of those areas that has not been studied well, right. actually. What's better? But I think that, you know, if people are farther away and traveling long distances to get to the hospital, it's probably safer to avoid possibility of going into labor with that stitch in place. If you're right. close to the hospital, you may not matter. But I always wanted, felt that taking out the stitch was also biologically better because the natural process of cervical ripening, which happens over the weeks prior to the onset of actual labor, right. to soften and gently open the cervix and dilate it prepared for labor, it kind of softened the scar tissue that's because of the stitch itself. By taking it out, it allows you some days and time for that process right. to occur. If you wait, that stitch is still in there. That scar tissue is always there, and it, it doesn't give the cervix an ability right. to prepare itself for birth. Right. We're more so we're more likely to leave it in longer if they're scheduled for a cesarean, anyway. Right. Right. If for whatever reason, it's cesarean, yeah. then we're more like, I right, leave it in. We'll do it at the same time as your cesarean. That one of the nuances is, but cerclage is not an indication for C-section. Right. Right. Oh, and, absolutely. And not. the reality yeah. is that the majority overwhelmingly can deliver vaginally Correct. safely, which is the advantage of the McDonald Chirac right. technique versus an abdominal. Right. It's it's unrelated. Meaning, if someone needs a C-section, it's not because they had the cerclage. It's a separate reason, again, except for the abdominal cerclage. And one of the nuances is the McDonald's cerclage tends to be a little bit easier to take out in an office setting, whereas the Chiracar cerclage tends to require going back to the operating room to take it off. Because since it was sort of more extensive dissection to put it in, it's sometimes more hard to take out. And you could take it out in the office, but it tends to be more painful. And sometimes there's bleeding and it's not really worth trying in the office. So we usually do it in an operating room, uh, I would say, nine out of 10 times, it ends up being that way. And then the last question I just want to go over, and, and we sort of touched on this before, is it true that if someone has a cerclage, they need it in the next pregnancy? And I know that from the story you told before, obviously not, but 
it's that's an important thing to remember. It's not once a cerclage, always a cerclage. We've had people who've had cerclages one, two, or three times that come to us. We're like, listen, I don't know if you really need it. Let's right. let's try it without one the next pregnancy. And some people are just not on board with I that, had a and great, some are. Great story of a patient who was forty one and came finally to me for her last one because her doctor retired, and she had a loss at twenty two weeks for her first pregnancy when she was twenty years old, and then she had nine children and nine cerclages after that. And I said, well, do you need a cerclage? And she says, yeah, I always had a cerclage. I said, well, maybe it's time not to have one. And so, <laughs> and she went actually overdue to 42 weeks with yeah. no cerclage. And so, and it's always humbling how you yeah. know, that, that definitely doesn't apply. And, you know, again, the, the more surgeries you do to the cervix, there can be complications with that, right. lacerations, tears, damage. And the only thing I was going to add that I think we glossed over was the twins. And, oh, yeah, you know, twins. And, is a, it's twins a whole is a complicated whole, topic. Very complicated topic. Twins are rare that you need a stitch in place. The majority don't. And putting stitches in prophylactically, we've actually written pages Yeah, that doesn't that. work. It doesn't work to put it in just in case. And in fact, it may increase the risk of complications. So, yeah. So for twins, it's a very unique subset. But... There are some sets of twins that can benefit, and there are doctors who are adamant that all twins, that cerclages don't work at all in twins, which right. is not true either. And some of you are committing be, a crime if, right. you, if you put so a cerclage in a twin. You, you can't be dogmatic, but the reality is that the majority of twins do not require right. it, and a short cervix in a twin pregnancy often does not mean cervical insufficiency. Right. It's a different story. But, uh, and particularly because it's often later at 24 weeks, 25 weeks, and so right. on. Um, but a very early short cervix in a twin pregnancy, particularly somebody who might have had cervical surgery, they may benefit from this. Right. And it's certainly prudent. Uh, and uh, But I think those are very unique cases. And if we look at all of our twins in our data set, I mean, maybe yeah. you keep track. Yeah, I mean, I how mean, many cerclages do we have in them? I mean, we've, less than uh, 10 over, over, sure. and over a, well, I would say in over a thousand twins, it, the number's under 30. I don't know if it's 20 or, I mean, so you're talking about, you know. Very rare. To yeah, I and mean, you're talking so. about 2%. It's such a small number. And the data, the old time data, and I remember this, before they had a lot of these randomized trials and studies learning as a resident, even then, most of the obstetricians at the time, based on anecdotal experience and so on, said maybe 1% to 2% of twins have cervical incompetence, but the majority don't. Yeah. Um. So that that's, and, and that and also, we see a select group because we see a lot of fertility assisted yeah, sure. pregnancies with also older cohort of yeah. patients. So it lends itself to more complications. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, this was a great review of cerclage. I know it's a topic that you and I talk about and we find fascinating. And a lot of people come to our practice because of these decisions. And we end up placing a fair number because people sort of gravitate to us. But it's, it's, it is, again, one of the big takeaway messages is you can't be dogmatic with this. It is very humbling. We don't really know exactly what we're treating. We try our best and everyone's working towards that. But there are a lot of situations where no one knows for sure. And we just have to you know, try to figure out on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I mean, we've tried to create some algorithms and yeah. so has American College of OBGYN and Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine as to when. And, and sometimes it's been useful to sort of say, I won't put it in in the circumstance. Right. But the reality is that there are cases that don't fit these algorithms and you have to be able to adjust and pivot on these things. And right. I, and because again, the, the molecular understanding of what cervical incompetence is, is yet to be defined. And we also know that it doesn't, it skips pregnancies, it's not recurrent, right. and it's not clear why one person would have it and not in the next pregnancy. And I think it's it's been a long and interesting experience in my career trying to figured this out, but I weathered the storm through a good 15 years of nihilistic sort of <laughs> experience where everybody thought I was a heretic for putting in cerclages in and even in the most obvious cases. Right. They've now, come around. And now there are more people putting in, and I think even sometimes unnecessary cerclages. Right. So I find myself kind of that there's somewhere in the middle where right. I'm sort of saying that you shouldn't put in cerclage. And they're like, well, but the algorithm says, I'm like, I know, but it's probably not a good <laughs> idea. And then before it used to be, isn't it illegal to put a cerclage in that circumstance? Like we had that case yeah. once years ago with that twin. Then we said, no, it's not illegal. <laughs> Excellent. Right to do. Well, thank you for coming on. We will have you again. And this was a great review of cerclage. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www. Dot healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw 
at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.